You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken, conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. The sword is always double-edged here. The sandals cost 20 obols. That's more than you'd earn in a week of work, but you've saved up the money and it's worth it. Since you left the brothel years ago, your money is your own and there's no one to tell you what to spend it on. Even now, after all these years, it's the freedom to buy the sandals, not only the sandals themselves, that thrills you. The leather is soft and comfortable. The straps feel like butter against your skin. You can walk in them all day, through the dusty streets of Athens, down by the busy ports and up northwest of the Acropolis, but that's not the best part. The best part is what it says on the soles, a message written in all that dust. Follow me. Now every step you take in this city, from the ports to the shaded Acropolis, then back in the sun-drenched circuit, will be an advertisement. Follow me for a quick assignation in a private alley. Follow me for a longer interlude in a private room with a comfortable bed. You know friendly tavern keepers all over the city, willing to rent out rooms for cheap. You don't bring them back to your own home, far from both of these neighborhoods. Better they don't know where you live. You didn't choose this life the first time. You were born in the brothels and turned out to work as soon as you were old enough. But then a wealthy lover bought your freedom. Philippos, you still think of him fondly to this day. And this time, you got to choose. You could have run to another city where your past wouldn't follow you and tried to become someone's honorable wife. You had the money. You could even have married Philippos. He would have had you. But Philippos died in war not a year after. What would have happened to you then if you'd cast in your lot with him? His sisters already hated you for soaking up money that should have gone to their family. And what kind of life is being a wife? 
No freedom to leave the house, to walk the dusty streets, to talk to anyone you choose. A jealous husband always breathing down your neck, bearing babies over and over, your body ripped open. Not much different between wifehood and other forms of prostitution, in your mind. At least this way you get to choose your husbands, and they never last longer than an hour or two. And no one can stop you from using your herbs at night to keep any seed from taking hold. Sometimes you see the proper wives in the city, fetching water, their faces pinched and old before their time. Not one of them looks happy. You and your sisters, you are happy. You laugh and laugh in the streets and the taverns. You go wherever you wish. But it is not always an easy life. There is always the threat of violence. You are not the only one with writing on her sandals. One of your sisters has shoes that say, This way. Another has a picture of Aphrodite. You all know each other's footprints in the dust. If one of you doesn't come back from a tryst, and it happens far more than it should, the footprints will lead the way. The sisters of the city watch out for each other. From second-floor tavern windows, from darkened alleys and market squares, your eyes follow each other. Who you were with, what time of day, what the footprints say in the dust, not one of you is ever lost. The sun is high in the sky now. You could use some shade. You turn down an alleyway, and there are footsteps at your back. Good. You've caught one. You look back at him. He's handsome and young, his face open and non-threatening, a little intimidated. You smile reassuringly. First time? Don't worry. I don't bite. You say, follow me. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> we're back from our summer hiatus. We hope you guys had a great summer. We are back for season seven. And here's the thing, as we mentioned before, our season seven is going to be a season of self-contained episodes. While we normally have an overarching season where everything joins in at the end, this time we just thought, nope, not doing that. We're going to just have all of our episodes be self-contained stories. It's taken a real a real amount of self-control for me to rein it back and not do seven episode arcs on various things. I did do six episodes on sex workers. For you, I was supposed to do three episodes on Spartacus and I did an entire season on the three servile wars. I mean, you wrote some of that. <laughs> we both have this exact same problem. So I feel like I can't really blame you. But we wanted to do this because this season we're going weekly and we really wanted to make the podcast as accessible as possible for people to jump in and get little bits and pieces. We have no idea if we're going to be able to sustain having this be a weekly podcast. We're staying optimistic and we're going to keep on keeping on for as long as we can. We're just going to keep swimming. This is an episode about sex workers in ancient Greece. I got interested in this topic when I was traveling in Corfu in Greece and I saw a beautiful statue of a woman named Phryne. She was a hetera of ancient Greece, a type of very high-class courtesan, and her story opened my eyes to the hetera and made me want to learn more about famous sex workers and talk about it on the podcast. And I'm finally getting to tell that story, and I'm so excited. Jen, do you remember when we saw that statue? I do. This was the last time Jenny and I were together in Europe. We had literally just launched the podcast like a couple of weeks ago, and I had never been to Greece before, and it was like my dream to go to Greece. And we went to Corfu and we went to the Achilleon, which is this incredible like palace. It has a massive like Iliad Achilles theme, as you can tell from the name. 
And there, like, tucked away in the corner was this statue of Phryne. And I was just, like, captivated by the story. And Jenny's like, I'm going to tell the story one day. And I was like, can we do it this season? It didn't fit in in that season. It took us three years to three. How long has it been? Three to four years. It took us till season three. Wait, 2008. When did we launch? I don't know. Season seven. (laughs) Seven seasons in. And we've finally gotten to tell the story of Phryne. And this is not her story. This episode, we're going to have to work up to it. (laughs) We're not there yet. We're still not there, but we're getting there. We're getting there. It'll be here this season. So naturally, this topic grew as I dug into it, and eventually it became several episodes, and this episode is the start of that journey. It will be about what life was like as a sex worker in ancient Greece. In the next few coming up, I'm not sure what order we're going to drop them in, we'll hang out with the fast crowd of ancient Athens, the reigning hetire of Athenian society. In another one after that, we'll tell the story of the hetira to rule all hetire. You might have heard of her, a lady named Aspasia. We'll also fit in an episode about the cult of Aphrodite, patron goddess of sex workers. And we'll be talking to someone who has written a book about what life looked like for sex workers in ancient Pompeii. Yeah, so this is the beginning of that journey into the world of Greek and eventually Roman sex workers, from the Pornai to Hetire, the most elite and rarefied courtesans of the ancient Greek world, and everyone in between because there were people in between. So shall we just dive right into this, Jenny? Let's dive right in. The conventional wisdom is that sex workers in ancient Greece were divided into two main categories, Pornai and Hatire. This is actually a drastic oversimplification. But let's start with the Pornai. The word Pornai comes from the Greek word Pornemai, or to sell. Pornai were the lowest ranks of sex workers in ancient Greece. Usually, they were enslaved women from cultures the Greeks would have considered barbarian. And we're using the term sex worker here, but this was not consensual sex work. Many of the people we're talking about were enslaved. Yeah, so it's kind of a misnomer to use the term sex worker. We're going to keep using it to keep it simple, but this wasn't consensual. So sex work as a profession was heavily associated with foreigners in ancient Greece. But sometimes, Greek women were also forced into it. If a family was impoverished and abandoned an unmarried daughter, she could wind up as a pornai. Even if she wasn't a slave, once a girl or a woman found herself in a brothel, she would be considered enslaved unless it could be proved that she wasn't. And that was often not easy because there wasn't a lot of formal documentation of your life back then. If your whole family happened to be dead or had moved away or couldn't be found for whatever reason, There might be no way to prove that you had come from a free family, for example. And I'm not exactly sure how it would have worked if that had been proven. But just the fact is that this could happen to somebody. And you could, you know, have your fortunes turn and wind up enslaved in a brothel. Pornai worked in brothels, which were concentrated in red light districts in Greek cities. The big red light districts in Athens were Piraeus, the port area, and Karamikos, northwest of the Acropolis. The brothels were run by pimps who could be men or women. Often they were foreigners who had once been sex workers themselves, but Greek citizens could also do this work. And the picture that I'm getting is that it wouldn't necessarily jeopardize their place in society. Being a pimp was considered slightly disreputable as a profession, but a more or less normal one. It wasn't massively stigmatized. I imagine it would be like kind of the same as being a Lanista, really. That's the impression I'm getting. Like it was something that you could do that it wasn't like criminalized or seen as really morally bad, but it might be seen as, you know, slightly, slightly disreputable. 
And I imagine probably like upper class men, let's be honest, dabbled in this the same way they dabbled in gladiators in ancient Rome, which is awful. It's a dark, dark world. It's the ancient world. Everything is awful. Weren't we talking earlier about how light and fun this season was going to be? We're starting off on the right foot. You promised me it would be light and fun. And now we're here. And I'm like, you're a liar. I am. I lied to you. (laughs) (laughs) The poor and I were considered the pimps enslaved property. The pimp got a percentage of the amount each sex worker earned, but the sex worker got to keep a little bit, and some wound up buying their freedom that way. Although, this would take a long time, and may have been impossible in practice unless the poor and I found a wealthy keeper who wanted to buy their freedom. In Athenian Greece, affordable sex was considered an important feature of democracy. Sex work was legal, and the price of sex work was strictly regulated to be affordable for all, And most customers were men. Poor and I could be either male or female. So the lawmaker credited for this innovation was an early Athenian statesman, Solon, who lived between 630 and 560 BC. And he was clearly the fucking king of incels. Ugh. And this is disputed. Not every historian agrees that this was actually the case. I mean, innovation in quotes there. That was supposed to be very ironic. (laughs) Often the ancient world is awful, but like, as I'm reading this, I'm just like, Anyway, this was set up, according to Solon, as a public health measure to prevent young men with high libidos from committing adultery, which was considered a criminal offense, and giving them an outlet for their sexual urges. And the women and some men in these brothels that were state-run were enslaved. So this is what democracy looks like. Awesome. I mean, just anybody telling you that Athens was some kind of font of idealized democracy um, is wrong. As we say every single time, for who? Just always ask them, for who? Because women's bodies are a public resource for democracy. Well, yeah. I mean, if everyone can afford it, then it's democratic, right? This is what democracy looks like. Jesus Christ, this is the worst. This is so dark. What are we doing? First off, I think as dark as it is, it's super important that we tell these stories because this was a real, this was really what life was like for a lot of enslaved women and men in ancient Greece and Rome. And it's dark and it hurts to hear and it hurts to tell and research. But it's, these are all stories that deserve to be heard and we're going to tell them. That's my soapbox. (laughs) Yeah. So... I was about to tell you about how the root of democracy was the idea that sex should be cheap and affordable for all men specifically. I mean, otherwise it's not democratic. And what are we even living in? I don't want to live in that world, Jenny. It's not going to shock you to hear that Solon is held up as a hero in incel spaces. No! Do you remember one of the occurrences of, of an incel killing people because he couldn't, you know, he was upset about people not sleeping with him or something? And there were, I feel like, a rash of op-eds from conservative men writing about how sex should be redistributed so that incels could have sex. Do you remember this, Jen? I vaguely remember this. And again, that's why this series is so important. Because people still think this today. There are still some people who think this way today and think that this is okay. I'm not down on sex or on sex work. I think sex workers deserve rights and to be treated fairly because it's, it's a job and they deserve to be safe. Absolutely. I'm not down on sex work. No, I mean, there are lots of people who do sex work today who find it really rewarding and love it and find a lot of joy in it. And by talking about all this negative stuff, I don't mean to 
erase that. And I certainly don't mean to insinuate that there were not people in the ancient world who also enjoyed it, because I'm sure that there were. It's just that we're starting in the darkest timeline here. Yeah. At the moment, we're not talking about consensual sex work. And at the moment, we're also not talking about in these op-eds that I'm talking about, consensual redistribution of sex, quote-unquote. They're talking about distributing women. Whether that's a sex worker or not a sex worker, that's not okay. It's absolutely not okay. Yeah. So because the sex was supposed to be affordable to all men, this was considered, quote-unquote, democratic because this is what democracy looks like. God. I've seen it implied that in ancient Greece, an outlet for male sex specifically was considered an essential aspect of a free democracy. And here's how the poet Philemon describes it. Quote, Solon, seeing Athens full of young men, with both an instinctual compulsion and a habit of straying in an inappropriate direction, bought women and established them in various places, equipped and common to all. The women stand naked that you not be deceived. Look at everything. Maybe you are not feeling well. You have some sort of pain. Why? The door is open. One obel. Hop in. There is no coyness, no idle talk, nor does she snatch herself away. But straight away, as you wish, in whatever way you wish. You come out. You tell her to go to hell. She is a stranger to you. Oh boy, can we please break this down? (laughs) This is fucking necessary? God! I mean, it's real, real dark. I mean, I love how they're saying it's democratic because the women all stand there naked and you can just pinch and grab and touch and see if it's whatever you want about this woman's body or not. There's no jewelry. There's no makeup. There's no clothing so that you could be deceived in any way, shape or form. This is true democracy. Just really rating a woman based on nothing but her naked body. So I think that When Jen and I were talking about this earlier before we started recording it, there were two specific things that horrified us the most about this paragraph and this situation, and they were very different. Jen, why don't you tell us what you think is the worst part of this whole setup right here? I mean, the worst part to me as an overweight woman is standing there naked with nothing on at all and having people come by and judge and touch and probably either not want to sleep with me or want to sleep with me because it's non-consensual. But the fear is, like, depending on how your pimp is, if you don't sleep with enough men and bring in enough business, well, what's going to happen to you? But also, if you have to sleep with these men and you're, like, the most desired one of this brothel, that's also horrible. Like, everything about the situation is horrible. What I remember you saying, and just correct me if I got it wrong, was that The fact that they're naked and it was a situation where your earnings are brought in by your body, but you have no way to enhance yourself was something that bugged you. Like there's no clothing. You're not wearing makeup. You're not wearing jewelry. Higher ranking sex workers could use their charm, their personality. And there's none of that here. Like there's nothing but your body and you have no control over who that appeals to and thus no control over ultimately your fate in this situation. Um, I think that I think that's really true. And I think, again, this is for me looking at this as a 21st century person, like, I don't know, the idea of standing naked with no control over any part of my bodily autonomy is horrifying. And, you know, standing there without the ability, as you said, to enhance yourself or to cloak the parts of you that you're not as happy with or whatever, everything is stripped bare and you are being judged and valued for things that 
at this particular point in time, you might not have that much control over, which is in some regards how your body may look based on the amount of food you're given or not given, whether or not you've had children, you know, how old you are, all things that are beyond your control. Yeah. And like, you know, being compared to other women in this line of naked women outside of this brothel. Yeah. And how much your value may become wrapped up in that. And it seems like people lived and died based on that. And I think for me, what just really chilled me about it was this idea of how vulnerable you are standing outside in a hostile place, like in a hostile, probably foreign place with nothing to protect you from that world, like not even a scrap of cloth to protect you from that. People can just walk by and do anything to your body that they want to. And that's really horrifying to me. It's less about being, I don't know, compared and valued and more about what can people do to me. And there's nothing protecting me from that, like nothing protecting my most vulnerable parts of my body from that. It's really scary. It's really scary. I mean, yeah, I think it's two sides of of the coin. I mean, the horror of the horror of the horror is that there's nothing to protect you from people doing anything to you. There's not even a scrap of, of anything. And then to me, the psychological bit behind it is like once you get over the horror of the horror of the horror is how much of your value are you now placing on externally what some man fetishizes about you or someone else? And how does that affect you long term? And just the, the idea that this is a real thing that some people dealt with is really, you know, we went to the darkest place of sex work first. Like there's there's parts of it that are more fun. But then when you peel back the curtain on that, it's it's less fun. I mean, we're going to get to all of it. Don't worry. Well, there's parts of it. There's parts of sex work that have more agency. They have more agency and they have more ability for social movement, particularly for women. But we started with the darkest timeline because we wanted to show you how a lot of sex workers lived, died. And sometimes if they did change their um, social status within the sex working community, where they might have started from. A lot of sex workers, even the ones who were at the highest echelons of glamorous sex work or what we think of glamorous, like the hatire, many of them started out here. And that's really important to know about, you know, who these women would have been and what kind of decisions they made and why. So I think it's a it's a good place to start. We're going to start where most women who wound up as sex workers started. Yeah. So prices in brothels were government regulated because democracy. Solon set the price of a sex worker at an obelisk, a sixth of a drachma, which was not very much money. We've seen some scholars say that the cost of a porni was set at roughly the price of a loaf of bread. It rose to a drachma and a half by the middle of the fourth century, possibly in line with inflation. That's what I'm guessing. Solon taxed the brothels and used the proceeds to build a temple to Aphrodite. Notice in the above passage, by the way, that, quote, the women stand naked that you not be deceived. You get a picture of the sex workers lined up naked outside the brothel. Nakedness appears a lot in the ancient sources, especially associated with low-ranking sex workers, the porni. Nakedness in Athenian artwork is often associated with depictions of sex workers. Did they really have to stand around naked in the streets, probably subjected to constant groping, just so nobody would be deceived? We don't know how accurate this is, but it's a grim picture. It is a really grim picture, and it makes me ragey. Same. I mean, did you not get that from my tone? (laughs) (laughs) I picked it up loud and clear, babe. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So in the ancient sources, there's also an association between sex workers and wool workers, People who spun wool. 
And again, this is another this is another thing that is disputed. Not everyone agrees. Do you remember when we were doing um, our episode with Liv about her book, and then we went into the myth of Arachne, and I got really wrapped around the axle about wool spinning versus weaving? Making a tapestry, which are not at all anything similar. The difference is that spinning wool is like taking the raw material of sheep's wool and spinning it into thread. Yeah, what they were doing was essentially spinning the raw goods into something that could then be dyed and used in making finished product wool. Yeah. So... There are lots of depictions of sex workers spinning wool on attic pottery and other places, and you'll often be able to tell if a woman spinning wool on a pot or something is in fact a sex worker if she's naked and spinning wool. Yeah, because why give her clothes? So working wool into thread was considered both women's work and very low-ranking work in ancient Greece. Specifically, it was the work of enslaved women primarily. Aristotle, in claiming why slavery as an institution was necessary and would never go away. Oh, hold up, hold up, folks. Aristotle has something awful to say. Aristotle is going to just break our brains with something horrific that is about to come out of his brain. And I'm just going to hit you with it. So here's Aristotle on why slavery will never go away. Quote, So long as shuttles could not spin by themselves, owners would have need for slaves. Thanks, Aristotle. Thanks. Thanks for that. The work of spinning wool was seen as work exclusively for enslaved women at this time and in this place. And it was also frequently done by sex workers out of economic efficiency. It was common for brothel owners to make their enslaved sex workers spin wool in the brothels during the slow periods because the thing about the sex work is that it, you know, it comes and goes. It's not like you have like a regular influx like there might be a whole lot of customers and then there might not yeah you had a lot of downtime i imagine right so like when the sex workers were not busy then the brothel owners wouldn't let them just like hang out like they had to do something else to make money for the brothel so they would make them spin wool and independent sex workers would do this too they would spin wool on the side to make ends meet because not all sex workers were um, enslaved and worked in a brothel and we're going to get to them in a minute And this has been confirmed in the archaeology, by the way, where hundreds of loom weights and other artifacts of woolworking and weaving have been found in buildings that are believed to have been ancient brothels. The sex workers did not love this, apparently, and with good reason. Woolworking was tedious, it was physically taxing, and it had no upward mobility. Enslaved people in ancient Greece sometimes got to keep at least some of their earnings in the jobs they did. One of the more degrading factors of slavery to the ancient Greeks wasn't whether or not you were paid, but whether you had a supervisor directly monitoring how you spent your time. Yeah, and this is to be clear, I'm not sure that necessarily real enslaved people thought that. I think it was more like elite men who wrote about it. No, this is a philosopher, upper class person thinking this nonsense. Someone with the with the privilege to think that. Yeah, but also there are records of people who, I don't know, may have been moderately middle class at least, turning down jobs that had some kind of boss scenario, as opposed to just being in business for themselves. So this is what I hear. I don't know if you talk to someone who was enslaved that they would agree with it. Yeah. So poor and I were often allowed to keep a portion of their earnings which they could save up and, as we mentioned earlier, theoretically buy their freedom. This process was called manumission. In practice, this may have been more or less impossible unless the poor eye met a wealthy benefactor who wanted to buy their freedom, which sometimes happened. I mean, it's that illusion, right? It's that golden ring. It's the gladiator's rudis. You know, it's their sword that sets them free. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's the, it's the rudis. Mm-hmm. And working as a poor eye, while it was horribly degrading, 
at least provided an opportunity to meet that benefactor, that white whale who could provide you with a way out. Woolworking, however, wasn't an activity that poor and I got paid for from what I understand. The brothel owner would typically keep all or, or most of the proceeds if there was money in it for the the sex worker it was probably very very little exactly and that's why they hated it there was no chance to take that money from a very physically taxing and demanding work and put some of it aside for their manumission or even just for their daily life like not all brothel owners i'm sure fed or clothed or did anything to support the people who worked for them Yeah, and I don't know what the picture is on whether the brothel owners made the sex workers buy their own clothes and food. Like, I really don't know. It probably varied wildly from time period to time period and brothel to brothel and region to region. I think you're probably right, which is why there's no specific info on it. Anyway, so the brothel owner typically kept all or most of the proceeds of the wool work, which was very physically taxing. And there was no chance to meet that wealthy benefactor who might take a shine to you and pay your manumission fee. And for independent sex workers who were generally not enslaved, woolworking was, as I said, a lower paying job than sex work. It was just physically harder and it didn't you didn't get as much from it. The picture that I get is that woolworking was considered meagerly paid drudgery with no way out. But being a poor nigh at least offered better pay and a chance at escape. A number of epigrams, poems inscribed on votive offerings to gods, have been found on offerings to Athena, who was associated with textile production, and Aphrodite, who was associated with sex work, by sex workers asking for enough earnings to abandon their woolworking job and focus just on the sex work. Like, this was a common prayer that people made to the gods. So, being a pornai in ancient Greece was obviously non-consensual. A lot of the sex workers in this context were enslaved and were not trying to erase or gloss over that. But it presented some opportunities, however slim, to move out of being enslaved, much like the life of a gladiator in ancient Rome. And here's what that could look like for the lucky few who pulled it off. If this was a typical episode about sex work in ancient Greece, we'd launch immediately into talking about the hetere, elite high-class courtesans of ancient Athens. But this is not a typical episode about sex work in ancient Greece. It turns out there were lots of levels of independent sex work between pornai and hetere, and it's fascinating to dive into it and examine it. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? 
<laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So there were also sex workers in ancient Athens who were not porni working in brothels, and they were not hetire, the elegant courtesans at the peak of their profession. These were independent sex workers who walked the streets of Athens, were not enslaved, and did not work in a brothel. These sex workers didn't have a pimp. They got to keep all of their money. Their workplace, at least the place where they found their customers, was out in the streets of Athens. This was unusual from our picture of women in ancient Greece, at least Athenian Greece, where women's lives were strictly curtailed and generally relegated to the home, as in women were expected to never go outside. And I'm not sure exactly how often that happened in practice, that women were just confined to their homes, but it was the ideal. In practice, wealthy women were probably much more able to follow these rules of propriety and never leaving the house than less wealthy women who didn't have as many slaves and servants to run errands for them. However, independent sex workers were also out walking in the streets, which gives an impression that they had more freedom of movement. So many of the women out in the streets in ancient Athens actually may have been sex workers or just enslaved women running errands and that kind of stuff. Well, there were probably women running errands, but there were probably like many women were possibly sex workers if this picture that I'm painting is accurate. So this might have been something that became associated with sex workers just moving freely in spaces mostly reserved for men. It may have been true that many women in ancient Athens, especially, and other, you know, really patriarchal cultures like this, who were moving freely in public spaces that were normally reserved for men, may in fact have been sex workers because this is a place where you can get your customers. Because if you're a woman who's out in the street, I'm assuming unchaperoned, it means that potentially you're an enslaved person, you are a sex worker, or you're someone who people think that they have the right over your bodily autonomy, which is awful. Yeah, and I think that one thing about that paragraph from Philemon, that awful paragraph, was what you're picking up here is that people saw women's bodies as a public resource, and there was a lot of hostility there. It's like, she's nothing to you, you know? So there was definitely a real risk of violence at all levels of sex work is the impression that I'm picking up here. Yeah, and the hard, I mean, again, the horrible thing about that paragraph was like, she's nothing to you. You can treat her like dirt. You can do whatever you want to her. He he he, isn't that great? You can't do that with your wife. It's like, ugh. And that really carries forward to the way some men look at women today, you know, things like catcalling. Yeah, because she's out in public on her own. There's no man at her side. She's not owned by a boyfriend or a husband or a father. She's just out there, which means she's sexually available. Like, and this shit still exists now. It does. It has come down to us through the ages, and it all started in the ancient world. You can also see why these attitudes are so hard to for a lot of people to 
identify within themselves and change because it's so ingrained in them. That doesn't mean it's right. I'm just saying it's so old. It's so there. 2,000 years and more of history is behind all that catcalling. Absolutely. Being an independent sex worker meant that a woman was not under the control of a husband. So this may have been one of the most liberating professions a woman could have in ancient Greece. Because she is independent. She's not owned by a husband or by a pimp. She has her own freedom, we're saying here. Right. And and this the picture of that, like in one way it's liberating, in another way it's not. And we're going to get into all the nuances. But in, in a certain way. Yeah, I just want to confirm that she's not an enslaved woman we're talking about. That's right. So these women were not standing naked outside brothels to attract customers. They got to wear clothes, they were not enslaved, and they had ways of attracting customers, some of which were very creative. A pair of sandals was once found with marks on the soles that would have left writing in the women's footprints that read, follow me. So ancient sources describe these sex workers, who were largely women but not all women, as being noticeable with their bright, flamboyant makeup. The comic author Eubulus describes them this way, and this is not a flattering description. Quote, Plastered over with layers of white lead, jowls smeared with mulberry juice, and if you go out on a summer's day, two rills of inky water flow from your eyes, and the sweat rolling from your cheeks upon your throat makes a vermilion furrow, while the hairs blown about on your face look gray, they are so full of white lead. So... I mean, one thing he's pointing out is, is bright makeup that would probably melt in sweat if it happened to be hot outside. <laughs> That's probably real. You also get the impression that this isn't a young woman, and that is also probably real, because it's quite possible that many independent sex workers were older because it would have taken an enslaved pornai years to save up enough to buy their freedom, I'm assuming. Some of them got lucky and found a wealthy benefactor who would buy their freedom all at once, but some of them saved up for it a pittance at a time, and then once they got that freedom, they might have been in their 40s. So many of these independent sex workers may indeed have been older. Not all independent sex workers, by the way, started out as pornai. Single women with no other means of support, such as lone foreign women and maybe impoverished widows, were often left with few other options than to work the streets. But for pornai who were able to buy their freedom, this could be a move up. So I've been reading this book, The Wolf Den, by Elodie Harper, and we're going to have her on later this season. And she's got this character at one of her symposia, at one of her dinner parties, who is caked in makeup. And she's caked in makeup because... When she was an enslaved person, she had slave brands on her face. So it's possible that this makeup these people are wearing is to cover up a brand of slavery. I'm also thinking if they were a foreigner from somewhere where they had a lot of tattoos like Thrace or Scythia, it could be about what the aesthetic beauty is. You know what I mean? In Greece, they considered tattoos a shameful thing, like slaves were mostly tattooed, but oftentimes these were foreign women and they might have been from a culture where there were tattoos. Tattoos were seen as a mark of beauty or rank. Yeah, absolutely. They, they had a lot to do with your tribal culture and history. You would be proud to show that off. But if you've been in, you know, an enslaved person in this culture where this is not considered beautiful, this is not considered desirable for the men who you're trying to court the custom of, then of course you would be wearing a lot of makeup, even in the hot, hot sun. There's many reasons why that women might wear a lot of makeup in these situations. And another seems to be that this is a way to advertise that you're a sex worker wearing bright makeup and bright clothing. Yeah. So independent sex workers made more money than pornai. Their prices weren't regulated. They got to charge whatever they wanted and they could keep all of it. 
In one ancient source, there is a mention of a kind of subscription service that one sex worker had going, with a cost of five drachmas for 12 visits. Kind of like, you know, one of those yoga studios where you get like eight classes for the price of six. It's like a class pass. I mean, it's a very smart marketing move. So young, attractive sex workers could charge more. But there was also a specific niche market with a preference for older women because, shocker, older women are still attractive to many, many people. What? So generally, the women who performed at symposia, all-male ritual drinking parties, were also sex workers. These women were dancers, singers, and entertainers, and they also had to be sexually available at these parties. Yeah, and the picture of women who performed, and some, some boys, you know, who performed at Symposia, generally the picture that I get is that they were sex workers, but I'm not sure if they happened to be like poor Nye who worked at brothels and, you know, the pimp would sort of hire them out to do this work, or if they were independent and getting these gigs on their own, or maybe a mix of both. It's a little unclear. I bet it was a mix of both, to be honest with you. And to be honest, too, like these categories, you know, like poor Nye, Hatire, independent sex workers. It's probably not like a, as specific as dividing line as I'm presenting here. Like some scholars question whether many Hatire were in fact enslaved or how exactly it worked with independent sex workers versus, you know, women walking the streets who weren't in the brothel all the time, but who were still enslaved. The picture is not that clear. And there are some scholars who say that there really wasn't much of a difference between a Hatira and a Pornai, except in the words that we use to describe them. I'm going with the categories because it's it's easier to describe them that way, and um, that seems to be the prevailing theory. Yeah, and I also think it's easier to drill down and understand their lives that way, too. Right, by, you know, looking at them specifically, like specific situations you could be in as a sex worker. And giving, giving them some distinctions because it's difficult. I feel like everything is always a bit more fluid, and we sort of create this idea of like a social hierarchy that probably was much more fluid than we think it is. But in order to understand the framework and then how you would have worked within it, you kind of have to just create a framework. Exactly. And this picture may or may not be perfectly accurate or agreed upon by all scholars, but it's what we've got. We are not professionals, so we're just working with the material that we have. And, we, you know, our sources will be in the show notes. And if you want to know more, definitely go dig in. Absolutely. So both men and women could be sex workers. The clientele, however, was mostly men, although there are some references in some ancient sources to older women paying for young, attractive lovers. The situation for male sex workers was a little bit different than it was for female sex workers. So let's dig into that. So men, or rather largely boys, could be pornai, and some brothels in ancient Athens had exclusively male pornai. They could also be independent sex workers, and they could also be high-class escorts similar to hetire. They also had other avenues of sex work or pseudo-sex work open to them, which I'm going to get to in a minute. While women could be sex workers at basically any age, and I would say that they started at the same age, which might be unfortunately prepubescent, male sex work was generally confined to prepubescent and young adolescent boys. The Athenian Greek ideal of male beauty more or less exclusively started at puberty and went until a beard started to grow in. I mean, and I'm not saying that, like, older men didn't sleep with each other because I'm sure they did. This is just more about what is marketable. There was a lot of pederasty in ancient Greece, 
And the age range appears to be starting at like maybe 12 or 13 and going to like maybe 18-ish. And we talk a lot more about the pederasty thing in one of our Patreon episodes about Hadrian and Antinous. So if you want like a real breakdown about what that was and how it worked, and it's quite dark, go listen to that and sign up to our Patreon. Why not? (laughs) Yeah. You get so many extra episodes. Isn't that great? So male sex work was a little different from female sex work because of the different social status men had in ancient Greece. Legally, women weren't considered people in ancient Greece. They were the property of their husband or father or closest male relative's household. But men of the right rank could be citizens and participate in democracy. Women's bodies are a public resource. Democracy. Democracy! This is what democracy looks like. Barf. So these men could wield power and accumulate wealth and prestige outside of the home. However, if a boy from a citizen family fell on hard times and decided to try his hand at sex work or was sold into sex work by his family, he would be deprived of citizenship when he grew up and prohibited by law from addressing the Athenian assembly. He would essentially be barred from wielding political power. This was true even if he hadn't done sex work in years. Some historians have pointed out that if you were male, engaging in sex work entrenched already existing economic inequality because a boy who fell on hard financial times might have few options but to try it, thus barring him from full participation in society for the rest of his life. A more accepted form of sexual exchange was available to boys, at least boys from high-ranking families, in terms of pederastic eromanos erastes relationships. And this was more accepted in the culture of ancient Greece. We're not saying that we accept it. We're just saying it was accepted then. So the eromanos erastes relationship, it means lover-beloved. It was romanticized, which is really horrifying. This is really awful. And we went into a lot of detail about the psychology of this, the way that consent worked, which, shocker, it doesn't. The boy was supposed to get to choose, but we go into in detail into how how many pressures would be on a boy in this situation where they really didn't, plus they're too young to consent. Plus they're a boy. Right. It's just a bucket of horror is what it is. If you want to know more about that, we go into it in our episode on Hadrian and Antinous, which is on our Patreon. But basically, the thumbnail version of this is that these were socially sanctioned relationships between upper-class boys from citizen families or wealthy families and mature men who offered social advancement and mentorship in exchange for sex. It's horrible. It's fucked up. And it was very widespread in ancient Athens and other places in ancient Greece as well. These were pedophilic relationships where the older man would groom and seduce, which means groom, a young upper-class boy. But the important thing is these were not considered sex worker relationships. They weren't, but it was a sexual exchange, you know? Absolutely it was. But what I'm saying is, like, a boy could have this sort of relationship and not be considered a sex worker and therefore not a citizen. Exactly. You could retain all your privileges of citizenship and do this. Part of the exchange was that the older man would serve as a mentor the boy's whole life, continuing to bring him social benefits after their sexual relationship had ended, which was usually when the boy reached marriageable age. So these relationships had a transactional element, but were not supposed to be explicitly transactional. The Erastes was not supposed to just directly pay the Eronimus or his family. It was supposed to be like the boyfriend experience. I mean, this is really disgusting, but like it was it was more like it was supposed to be an emotional relationship. I mean, how much 
the boy in the situation really genuinely felt that is is a question. But that was what the older man wanted. Well, yeah, because this is all just this is all just child abuse. Yes, exactly. There was a lot of emotional labor as part of this package and delivering favors and elevated status and gifts for the boy rather than explicitly paying him for the sex acts that were being forced upon him because, again, this is abuse. However, boys from less well-off circumstances might not be able to afford not to be explicit about pay. They might have to engage in sex work for pay possibly at the same age, with the same men who might, in other circumstances, be their Erastes. And this would limit their upward mobility for life because they got paid and they had to be in this kind of relationship as a sex worker as opposed to as an Eromnos. Boys and young men in Athens who engaged in sex work could either put themselves on a treadmill going upward or going downward, depending on how explicit they were about the exchange. Yeah, and and my theory on this is that The less you need to be explicit, the more privileged you are anyway. Like you're from a wealthier background. So that just kind of it entrenches already existing inequalities is basically the argument. Absolutely. Yeah. There are examples of prosecutor speeches from real lawsuits that went on in Athens, by the way, accusing prominent men of having been sex workers in the past. And this was a, a way to discredit and disempower an enemy if you could get judges on your side or somehow prove that the man that you're targeting, like your political enemy, basically, your, your political opposition leader had once been a sex worker. There were all these lawsuits being brought in Athens, you know, ancient Athens, that were about this. And the only way, by the way, to prove that someone had been a sex worker in their past in court might be to get witnesses to give testimony because there wasn't like documentation of people's lives a lot of the time. So you'd have to bring in witnesses who lived in the area where this person grew up and who could tell you. And some of these people could be bribed or might be enemies of the defendant with their own axe to grind. So this is all very shady. In theory, any prominent man could be vulnerable to accusations of having been a sex worker in his youth, which would have, you know, robbed him of the ability to function in public life. Yeah. And I just want to stop for a minute because we talked a lot about how this avenue of sex work for men was mostly for young boys. But the reality is sex work for women was for prepubescent adolescent women up through until I guess they couldn't get any customers anymore at a certain age, maybe in their 50s or 60s. I don't know. What I'm trying to get at here is that while we've made a really big point of talking about how awful this was for these adolescent boys, there are adolescent girls going through the same thing as these boys. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that the difference between um, girls and boys is that with the Erastes Romanos relationship, there was at least a pretense of consent. I mean, not to say that it was real consent, but theoretically, the boy could say no to the Erastes. And girls could just never say no. They couldn't say no to being married off to husbands at the age of 12. They couldn't say no if they happened to be enslaved in a brothel. The only place where I see women being allowed to say no to sex is in the context of being a hetera. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Yeah. Should we talk about that? Yeah. So let's talk about that. There were some avenues of success for independent sex workers, both male and female. Some operated on the margins of poverty but particularly for women who can make a decent living. This job provided a level of social and financial independence that they couldn't get anywhere else. Men, especially citizen men, had more to lose. But for women, like, this might have been a way to make your fortune. Some independent sex workers rose to the heights of prosperity and the upper echelons of Athenian society. 
those elite sex workers at the top of their profession were hetere. They commanded the highest price, not just for sex, but for company. And the company was said to be legendary. Prices could be the equivalent of $100,000 to $150,000 for a single extended liaison. What that means is a bit fuzzy, but was usually determined by a contract. And this is an interesting thing. Like when you go down to like when you're a porn eye, it's just your body exposed to the world. And it's just it's not about your mind. It's not about how educated and fun and interesting you are. It's not about how you can enhance your beauty with clothes and makeup and stuff. As you go up, the more avenues you have to enhance your beauty with makeup, to wear clothes and to take control over this process and how people choose you until you get to the status of Hatira and the Hatira got to be valued for their minds. As well as their body. As well as their body. I mean, that's not going away, but they got to be charming and be educated and be valued for that. And it's not just about like, well, do you have the body that I want to have sex with or not? Or reverse it. They had to be charming and beautiful and engaging and witty and do all of this emotional labor. You could absolutely look at it that way, too, because that is what it was. Look at it from one angle, it's a benefit. Look at it from a different angle, it's a drawback. The sword is always double-edged here. Yeah. So women in ancient Greece led very constrained lives, as we've said many times. Even wealthy women were not always well-educated. Usually they were not. They weren't allowed to control their own finances, and their presence in public spaces was extremely restricted. There were lots of male-only spaces where they couldn't go. Hatire broke all of those rules. They had freedom of movement and financial independence that other women, even elite women, could only dream of. Hatire were often highly educated. Part of what they offered in addition to sex was witty, sparkling conversation. Clients came to them not just for their skills in the bedroom, but for their sharp repartee, their educated opinions, and their artistic talents. Women had very limited rights in ancient Greece. Legally, they weren't even considered people, as we've harped on quite a lot. We keep saying it because it keeps being true. It keeps being true. They were property of their husband or their nearest male relative's household. And that male relative was called her Kyrios, or master. Women had very little, if any, right to property in ancient Greece, especially Athens. Inheritances were generally under the control of a male guardian, and women could enter into financial contracts only for a single measure of grain. Whew, okay. But women at the top of the sex work game could become independently wealthy and have complete control over their finances. Mainly what I'm talking about here is how sex work was for people in ancient Athens. I think that this probably extended to other cities like Corinth and Thebes, and the customs may have been slightly different, but a lot of the sources we get specifically talk about how it is in ancient Athens. And, you know, ancient Greece in general was not a monolith. No, and we can't, we can't, you know, unfortunately, we can't go through every single city-state and time period and tell you all about it. So we are focusing for the most part on ancient Athens. Yeah, and making some sweeping generalizations. So interestingly, we've mentioned that on Attic Pottery, if you see a naked woman or a woman spinning wool, she was probably a sex worker. Another clue is a woman depicted holding a purse, as sex workers were the only group of women permitted to handle larger sums of money than whatever, I don't know, a handful of grain costs. And then there's the issue of consent. Women in ancient Greece in general did not get to choose who they had sex with. This is a reality. Porni did not get to choose. Enslaved women in general did not get to choose. 
women and girls given away as wives did not as a whole get to choose who their husband was. You married who your parents told you to marry, and that was it. And a lot of the time, these decisions were made based on, you know, inheritance issues. There were situations to do with inheritance where women were legally compelled to marry their nearest male relative, usually a cousin or uncle. God! Other strata of independent sex workers probably did get to choose to an extent, but this choice was no doubt constrained by economic necessity. The most sought-after hetere, however, got to choose who they had sex with. And this is huge. They were one of the only groups of women in ancient Greece who genuinely got to choose their sexual partners. They took only one or a few lovers at a time, and they were very selective. And they had long-term relationships with their lovers that were emotional as well as physical. Men would compete for them and woo them, and Hetire could turn down those who didn't appeal, no matter how wealthy those admirers were. In fact, many Hetire made a strategy of turning down admirers, which only heightened their appeal, their admirers' desire for them, and the price that they would pay. So in theory, the Hetire were one of the only groups of women in ancient Greece whose consent mattered when it came to sex. Sort of. But the picture is fuzzy here. Some depictions of Hetire on attic pottery show scenes of abuse, specifically men hitting or threatening to hit Hetire with a sandal to get them to perform sex acts. There's a whole motif of women being hit with sandals on attic pottery, and I went down a whole rabbit hole on it. I think we'd talk about it in more depth in a different episode. So in attic pottery, when someone is trying to hit someone else with a sandal, apparently this happens a lot in attic pottery. It seems to happen on like a spectrum between punishment and sex. Like it could be shown in this context where an adult is hitting a child, but it can also take place in erotic environments. Like someone's doing this during sex. It seems kind of like spanking today. Like it could be abuse. It could be a consensual sex act. It could be abuse within a sex act. It could be non-sexual. It seems kind of complicated. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more in the next episode, I believe. Yeah, I think we talk about it in the next episode. So stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned for more about sandal spanking. When it was and wasn't appropriate to spank someone with a sandal. Right. We'll just get into the social graces of that. It's a little fuzzy to me how much power a Hatira would have really had to say no to sex, especially once she had formed a contract with a man, and many high-ranking Hatira drew up contracts with their lovers, some quite explicit. However, other types of artwork, especially like writing, such as Lucian's Dialogues with Courtesans, which admittedly was written by a Roman satirist more than 600 years after the fact, so how accurate is that? I don't know show sex workers turning down sex with their patrons when the patrons did things to piss them off. So it does seem like they may have had some power to say no to sex and this contract wasn't just you have to have sex with me whether you like it or not. For instance, one Hatira's patron sleeps with someone else despite an agreement to be exclusive and she refuses to sleep with him. This is in the Dialogues with Courtesans. Another patron brags about war crimes he's committed and his Hatira flatly refuses to let him into her bed even at double the usual price. Well done. Good for her. Yeah, goddamn right. So there were some upsides to being a Hetera. The wild parties, the ability to move in public spaces, the independence of wealth and property, possibly more of a standing to have consent respected. Although again, that picture is fuzzy. But there were also some downsides. I mean, some other downsides, aside from the picture of consent being fuzzy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, And these were pretty serious downsides. 
One was that the peak of the Hetera's career could be short. If the Hetera didn't earn enough to be financially independent for the rest of her life, during the short window of time when she was at the peak of her youth and beauty, when she's made herself most marketable and wanted, she had few options. Pivot to the niche market that preferred older women, buy and run her own brothel, or fall in fortune and work the streets. Maybe turn to wool working if things got really bad. But of course, that was everyone's last resort because it was really, really draining and the money wasn't good. Like being a Hatira was a young woman's game is the impression I'm getting, except for a few extremely rarefied examples of, you know, exceptions. I think the thing about being a Hatira was it was all about how well you could market yourself and stay desirable and have this mystique about yourself and how long that could last. And for some, most women, it was a young woman's game. For some women, they were able to parlay it into their later years, but you couldn't count on being that lucky. Yeah, and usually they parlayed it that way by becoming the long-term partner of, of a wealthy man. You could land somebody super wealthy and you could be his partner for life because he's so in love with you, or you could earn enough that you could live on that forever and you don't need anybody else and you don't have to do sex work when you're older or you might just have to continue doing the sex work but as you get older the pay gets worse and the clients get worse and the situation gets worse and nobody wants that or better if you fall into the right sort of niche market right and that may have happened for some people so marriage to one of your wealthy patrons might have been an option except if you you know were a woman especially except that many hatire were foreigners the position on marrying a client was a little complicated Many Hatire were foreigners, and at certain points in Athenian history, it was illegal for a citizen to marry a non-citizen, and also your children would be considered non-citizens, which would be a problem. Sometimes women would marry a wealthy patron, move to another city, not tell anyone that they'd once been Hatire, and hope that their past wouldn't catch up with them. And sometimes it did, especially if their patron had any enemies who wanted to bring a case against them, which would involve a lawyer digging into your past to find anything to slander the patron with. And if they couldn't pin sex work on the man, they would try to pin sex work on the woman. Exactly, because that was another way to discredit the man, because you were his property. But before their careers ended, the Hitirai, at the top of their game, were often very visible members of elite society moving freely in a culture that seemed determined to drive women out of the public sphere. They could be seen spending their money lavishly, running around with wealthy elite men, attending all-male dinners that no other women were allowed to go to, and throwing their own dinner parties, the best parties in town. Invitations to these were like diamonds. And that was another benefit of being a Hatira, the parties. But those parties weren't all fun and games. Sometimes they were downright dangerous. And next time, we're going to get ourselves on the guest list and tell you all about one. And that's it for this week. Join us next week for another installment of Sex Workers in Ancient Athens. It's a cheery tale. God, you're so dark. And in the meantime, join us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. For as little as $2 a month, you can get regular episodes a day early and ad-free, plus extra special bonus episodes. And Jenny, we have some new patrons to thank. We do. Thank you so much. Blanket apology to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Sorry. Thank you, Jillian Benjamin. Lisa Prather. Mycotropic. Megan. Just Megan. And Sheila Williams. 
Thank you so much, and we will see you in a week. Yeah, we will.